The pioneer of cheap literature in Scotland was Dougal Graham, who was born in Stirling in 1724. Historical accounts of what he looked like vary, but most agree that he had a hunchback and was lame at least in one leg. He made his living at first as a farm labourer in Campsie, and then he became a peddler, and then he went to Glasgow and learned how to become a printer. And he set up his own printing press, becoming a jobbing printer. He became famous in Scotland because he was following the Jacobite army and recording every single skirmish and battle that they had. Now he published these eyewitness accounts of the Jacobite battles and these were extremely popular in Scotland. They're also very important records of what happened. Although we have to take them with a wee bit of a pinch of salt because he had to be careful about what he was saying and different versions of his accounts vary depending on which publication they are. In this week's podcast, I'm going to talk a wee bit about these cheap books, chat books, and also the stationers who sold them, called the Flying Stationers. And there's also a lot of folklore and some beautiful border tales, because I promised you. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. There's a nice account of flying stationers coming into Kerrymuir to sell their chapbooks and literature in 1929. And it was written by J.M. Barry, who came from Kerrymuir, so he would have seen these things firsthand. Now, J.M. Barry wrote, among many other things, Peter Pan, so you may have heard of him before. And he describes all the flying stationers coming in and setting their stalls up in the square or selling their books and chapbooks just straight from their packs or straight from their backs. And he also says that some of the books were even sold by auction. And they would bring in all these different books, just whatever they could get their hands on because there wasn't the same kind of book ordering that we have today. So whatever they could find is whatever they brought. And he records what the most popular ones were in Kirimir in 1929, possibly due to what was available, but they are Thrummy Cap and Ackenstaff, which is a folk story, The Fishwives of Buckhaven, The Devil Upon Two Sticks, Gildroy, Sir James and the Rose, and the Brownie of Badnoch, and the Ghost of Firidan. And also, he records that there was a man called Thomas Haggart who bought a copy of Shakespeare's works. And Thomas's wife thought that this was sacrilege, and so she buried the book in the garden <laughs> to save Thomas's soul. Did it work? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Some of the other really popular publications that were going around were satirical poems about political situations, or there were satirical poems about taxation, or there were quite serious poems about taxation and the problems that were being incurred by them. Other serious poems and prose were being written about depopulation of the highlands and islands. And these songs and essays and poems were being sold door to door all over Scotland. So it's a really interesting way of disseminating current events, news and information of what, what was happening in different parts of Scotland at the time. 
if you listen to the first episode of the Scottish Folk Podcast, then you'll know of a woman called Spunk Janet, Spooky Janet, who used to sell spells and charms. And she lived in Dundee. Now, these selling of uh, spells and charms was quite a popular thing in Scotland, and it still probably is, to be honest. And there are quite a few publications in chapbooks which give these charms and spells and all sorts of different cures and also really interesting wee proverbs, sayings and different kinds of words. So I'm going to tell you a few of them from different publications and different chapbooks. The Scots language word for proverb is saw. So here are some Scots saws from the chapbooks, from 18th century chapbooks. He that lends money to a freen has a double loss. Freens are like fiddle strings, they mon of a screwed over tucht. Gi your tongue mere holidays than your heed. It's <laughs> a warning against gossip there. Your best when you're sleeping? Oh, that's more like an insult. Abdi lives lying after they're laughed at. Well, as an artist, I can I can feel that one. Dinna tie a knot with your tongue, you can loose with your teeth. Very good. He that spits against the wind spits in his own face. <laughs> Very good. He was scant on news that tell his father was hanged. Hmm. He'll tell it to Mayor than he meets. There you are, another one about gossip there. Dinna tell these for want of news. Yeah, don't make things up. If it weren't for the belly, the back would wear gold. Everyone's got to eat. A sillerless man gangs fast through the market. Well, that's true. Marry for love and work for siller. That's a nice one. Less of your manners and marry your siller. <laughs> so I think that was probably from somebody working in a market talking to somebody who should be buying their stuff but is just yakking at them. There are mayor of the McTacks but no of the McGee's. <laughs> More taken than given. He was missed by the water, but caught by the woody. Now, that's about somebody who's had a bit of a adventurous life, I would say. Like, they've avoided all kinds of danger, except they ended up being hung. Widdies is another word for the gallows. And here's another one. He rises o'er early that's hang at ere noon. Again, that's a bit of a, a cynical one. And it's warning about rash behaviour. Hasty was hang, but speed of foot, one awa. Hang a thief when he's young and he'll never steer when he's old. Well, there you are. There's no getting around that. Um. <laughs> when Ilka Ain gets the rain, the thief will get the woody. There you are. And I like this one. Who steals the fire steals the blessing. And I like that one a lot because of it all the folklore that's surrounding fire and tales of fire and theft of fire. I like that one a lot. The other ones that I like are May your love be as deep as the snow on the ben and your troubles as few as the teeth. Well, hen, 
because there's no teeth on a hen, of course. Now, you might be familiar with the Selkirk Grace. Some he meet and can eat, some he nan who want it, but we he meet and we can eat, so let the Lord be thank it. Well, there's a Gaelic version, an old Gaelic version of that, and it's slightly different. And the translation of it goes, May my heart always bless my eyes, and my eyes bless all that they see. And may I always bless my neighbour, though my neighbour should never bless me. <laughs> and that blessing is really about getting rid of the evil eye, getting the evil eye off you. And there's other ones as well, so here's another one. And this one comes from Iona. So, I appeal to Mary, aidful mother of men. I appeal to Breed, foster mother of Christ omnipotent. I appeal to Columba, apostle of shore and sea. I appeal to heaven, to all the saints and angels that be above. And if that's too complicated, here's an old druid curse from Morrishire. And what you would need to do is get a rag, dip it in water, and then beat the rag against a, a rock with a heavy piece of wood and say this rhyme. I beat this rag upon this stain to raise the wind in the devil's name. It shall not fall till I please again. That's if you wanted to raise a wind against your enemies. And here is a way of lifting the evil eye that is upon you, which causes yawning. The eye that goes over me and through me, the eye that pierces to the bone and the marrow, I will overthrow and the elements will help me. Another version of this says, the king of elements will help me. So there you go. If you find yourself yawning, that is the rhyme to say. One of the things I find quite interesting about the Scottish folk belief around curses and charms and things is the connections that they have with other cultures. So one of the ones that I read was about cursing or charming a gate, which makes sense because you know a gate is the entrance or the exit to and from a property. And in Baba Yaga stories, Russian uh, fairy tale stories, Baba Yaga also has a charm and a spell that she uses on her gate to keep people out, to keep people in. And this is the Scottish one, and this is from about the what, 18th century again. Here we go. With hurt and hate I charm this gate, he shall not sleep or soon or late. And to lift that, you say, I take the spell from off this gate, nay ill shall fall or muckle hate, till the devil speaks the world of fate, hail shall he be in the devil's name. But I do think it's quite interesting that cursing or charming of a door or a window, and it's been used on doors and gates apparently in history. So there you are. <laughs> Lots of stories for you now. And these first two were ones that I heard growing up. So they're from my family to yours. He was a very clever man and read every book he could get his hands on. And one day he was sat in the woods just finishing his latest book and he said aloud, I can't read fast enough. I wish I just knew everything there was to know. Oh, really? a voice beside him said, and he looked and he saw a glass stick. 
I can give you that knowledge, she said, but in exchange I'd like your life's memories. I'll give you all except one minute, he said. Done, she cried, and with a stamp of her cloven hoofed foot, he suddenly found himself in another world, and all the knowledge of mankind flooded into his head. He didn't notice time passing or his body aging as he absorbed all there was to know. And finally, the flood of knowledge stopped. He found himself, sat in the same place in the woods, a much, much older man, at the very end of his days. The glass stick peered at him and said, you've one minute left. And suddenly that minute of memory of his life came back to him and filled his heart. The music, the songs, the people, the tastes, the joys he had forsaken for facts. And that's where the glass stick left him. She turned and walked back into the woods singing with the birds. This story is one I recently shared on my Instagram page and it's always stuck with me. So this story has been told uh, for generations and I thought I would share it with you. But it's always stuck with me because I wonder, you know, what really happened? (laughs) Like, was Dawn pushed? What happened? So I don't know. You give it a listen. You let me know what you think. Don't go down to Loch Tay at twilight, Maggie's granny told her, because there's a creature there who lives beneath the water and it's not quite man and it's not quite beast. It's a cursed thing and it feasts on the flesh of man. Aye, aye, said Maggie, and she was a curious young woman, and so one day, one evening at twilight, she went down to the loch side. Anybody there? she shouted. She laughed and danced, as only the breeze answered. But there was someone listening, and beneath the surface of the water a pair of eyes followed her every move, every skip and step. And above the surface, too, she had been heard by Dawn, who had seen her walk alone and decided to follow her. He stepped out from where he was hiding and grabbed her arm. She tried to pull free, but he was too strong and a struggle began. Suddenly, there was a frothing, boiling of the water and then a blood-curdling shriek as a huge beast burst out, grabbed Dawn and pulled him down, down, down into the loch. Maggie ran home and never again did she visit the loch at twilight. Loch Ness has been home to more than just Nessie over the years and in the 14th century the Earl of Moray had to employ several crews and vessels to patrol Loch Ness because of the threat of pirates which was a real problem in the area. Now, these vessels did an excellent job and they would charge the merchant ships that were coming up Loch Ness a toll so that they could defend them against pirates. And the Earl's vessels did such a good job that they wiped out piracy in Loch Ness. That's great news, except that meant that the merchant ships no longer wanted to pay that toll because there was no threat of pirates. And so the Earl's ships turned to piracy in order to make their living. 
The story of Thomas the Rhymer is a wee bit complex because he's supposed to have been a real person and some historians have it that he signed a charter in connection with Melrose convent in 1189 and others have it that he lived during the 13th century and he's also supposed to have disappeared in 1307. It spans quite a stretch of time, really, to be alive and to be doing things. But perhaps the thing that he's most well known for is his courting of a fairy woman. And this is the story that I'm going to tell you now. Thomas had about nine and a half acres of land to farm. And because this was relatively small, it meant that he had time for his hobbies, his leisure activities, which happened to be wandering around the countryside with his klarsach, his harp, singing songs and writing poems. And one of his favourite places to do this was underneath a big hawthorn tree called the Eldon Tree. Now, this name comes from the Scots Eldron for uncanny or weird and if it was known that at the time, well, that's probably got something to do with the Scottish folk traditions and the folk beliefs about hawthorn trees being uncanny and weird. And it's one of our few remaining really clear evidence of tree worship and nature worship in Scottish folk tradition from a time that none of us can remember. Not your time or my time. Somebody else's time. Anyway, this tree, the original one, blew down, unfortunately, in a huge gale in 1804. And lots of things were done to revive it, including pouring wine on the roots of it and uh, casting spells, all kinds of things, but nothing worked. So there is a tree today that's known as the Elden Tree, but it's not the same one. It's close to it. It's not the same one. Somebody who remembers the original tree once said that it was his big and as thick as a man's waist, the trunk of the tree. And its branches were perfect circles. There you are. And round the top, the spring was a solid sheet of white flourishing and scenting the hail tune end to end. So it would have been some tree. Anyway, on with the story. One summer's day, in the shade of this tree, Thomas was surprised to hear the sound of small bells, which, by the sound of their tone, could only have been made by of silver. And out of the wood he saw coming this beautiful woman dressed in green. And the horse that she was riding had all these gorgeous silver bells tinkling on the reins. And he thought for a second, because she was so beautiful, that she was the Mary of, of Christ. <laughs> Queen of heaven, he said. But this woman said, no, I am not her. I am, in fact, the queen of Elfland, or Middle Earth, is what she says. And her velvet cloak was covered in green velvet, in silk. And it was so beautiful. It was so much greener than the grass and so much greener than the leaves. And he just couldn't take his eyes off her. And she asked him to sing and play for her. And she said that if he would do that, then she would give him a kiss. <laughs> but she said that if he were to kiss her, then he would be hers for seven years. No more, no less. Now, he didn't seem to think that was a problem because, you know, he thought that she was beautiful and she quite fancied a smooch. So he agreed. And they had a lovely afternoon underneath a tree and he played her lots of songs and gave her lots of smooches and uh, they had a lovely time. 
And he was lying with his head on her lap, singing a wee song to her, when she stopped him and said that she had to tell him something. And suddenly she showed him three roads. Now, one was very narrow, and she said it was the road of righteousness. And it was covered with thorns and briars. And she said that there were very few inquiries as to that road. And the second road was very wide, and it was among flowered fields. And it was called the path to wickedness, although, she said, some call it the path to heaven. And then there was the third road, which led over the Ferny Hill, and that was the road to Elfland, Feridum. And that was the one that they were going to take. But before they got back on their horses, or he got onto her horse, she had another warning to give him. She told him that when they arrived in Fairyland, in Elftum, that he was not to utter a single word, not one. And that was really hard for Thomas because he liked to talk and he liked to sing. <laughs> and she said no matter what happened, if somebody asked him a question, he couldn't speak, not one word. Well, it was a bit of a setback, but he agreed because, you know, she was very pretty and also he kind of locked himself into this agreement with the old, you know, seven years for one kiss thing. So off they went. And she said that the other thing about this road, which was quite exciting, was it was the road to eternal youth. And King Arthur had once walked it. Well, that's old fun, isn't it? Good facts as you're going along. Good tour guide. Now, King Arthur had, at some point, gone to the Isle of Avalon along this road and he wanted to taste the apples of eternal youth. There we are. And this story, particularly, is one of the reasons why we do it for apples on Halloween. But that aside... <laughs> they came to an orchard and there the Queen plucked an apple to give to Thomas. And she said that if he ate it, then he would have a tongue that could not lie. Now, Thomas wasn't too sure about that because the thing is, he, he really liked storytelling and he really liked bragging and sometimes he had to sell cattle and he wasn't great at, you know, telling everybody who was, might buy his cattle about the flaws of the cattle and things. So he was like, really, can't lie? Don't know about that one. And, I mean, what was he going to do when he was, like, trying to charm the ladies, you know? He had to give them super-duper compliments, even if they weren't true. I mean, how was he going to exist, really? Lying was his life when he thought about it. It is disappointing, I suppose. And then how was he going to be nice to his uh, superiors, so to speak? How was he going to be nice to the lairds of the land, who he didn't like at all? That's just really going to be quite hard. However, the fairy queen wasn't interested in any of his chat. <laughs> so she made him eat the apple and they journeyed on to her realm. And he was very happy there for seven years and he kept silent somehow. And when the time came for his return to normalcy, back to our world, he found himself back at Huntley Bank under the Elden Tree without even having to walk anywhere, just magically appeared. He asked her if he might, at some point in the future, be allowed to return to Fairyland again. 
The queen thought about it and said to him that if she ever did want him to return to Fairyland or Elfdom, then she would send him a messenger and he would know it immediately. There would be no mistaking it. And he had to be content with that because at that point she disappeared. Poof, gone. And he was left standing there alone underneath the Elden tree. But at least he could speak now and he could only speak the truth. Now, he discovered that not only could he only speak the truth, but he could speak the truth about future events. He could predict what was going to happen in the future, because now he had what we call the second sight. Now, this had the added advantage of being a really good moneymaker for him, and he was able to make a career predicting the future. And his predictions were so precise, he could even give exact dates and names. One of the things that he predicted, for example, was the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314. Another prediction that he made was about the Battle of the Halidon Hill in 1333. And another prediction he had was about Flodden. He foresaw the fall of his family and several other people's families, and he became very wealthy for predicting the future. Now, one day, while he was with a party of people predicting the future for money, he saw a white hind, white deer, walk out of the woods. Now, this beast was so beautiful, so striking and so unusual. It was glowing, pearlescent. He knew at once, without a shadow of a doubt, it was the fairy queen's messenger. And so he got up, barely even excusing himself, and just followed it into the woods and supposedly back to fairyland. And ever since that day when Thomas the Rhymer, true Thomas as he's also known, disappeared into the woods following the deer, there has been a story, a fairy story, or a folk belief maybe, that he will one day return with the fairy host. About 150 years ago, there was a man in Cooper who believed that he'd actually met a returned Thomas the Rhymer and that they had talked for length about all sorts of things and the future of Scotland. Now, whether or not that's true and whether or not he had really spoken to the true Thomas or not, well, that's a story in itself. Thomas the Rhymer is remembered every year at the Melrose Festival in June. And every year we remember the eating of the apples and the riding of the fairy queen. And on the outside of the eastern wall of the Church of Scotland in Earlston, there is a stone which has been removed and kept from a much earlier church. And on it, the words read, All Drymer race lies in this place. Is it Thomas? Who can say? Once upon a time in the borders there lived a tailor and he lived with his young son who was about 10 years old and his wife who was much much older and she was an extremely good farmer, an extremely good dairy maid and an extremely good storyteller and she was extremely crabbit. Oh, there was nothing you could do to please her. She was really very bad tempered. 
and one morning the tailor and his son, who he was training to be his apprentice, were sitting at the breakfast table on the farm where they lived. And there wasn't very much to eat for breakfast that day, but his wife had brought a really wonderful, delicious jug of full creamy milk, and the tailor and his son just couldn't get enough of it. It was delicious. Can we have some more milk, please? He said to his wife. She said, there's no very much milk in the village of the day. She picked up a jug and she wandered off to the barn where the cows were. Now, the tailor's son was a curious wee lad and he decided to jump off his seat and follow his mother, follow the tailor's wife into the barn. And he expected to see her milking the cows, but he didn't see that at all. What he saw was her turning a huge hand, a massive crank in the wall. And all this beautiful milk, full creamy milk, came out of a wee spout and filled up the jug. And then she turned it off and he ran back to his seat, sat back up at the table so she wouldn't even know that she had been spied on. She brought it back in, this jug full of milk, and she put it on the table. There you are, she said. And then she went off to do her day's work. Now the tailor got his son into their wee workshop and they started working away on a piece of clothing. Now, the tailor's son was just, he couldn't focus. He was not interested at all. He heard a wee noise outside and he was like, oh, what is it? And he ran to the window and he saw piggies. Oh, it's the Grumpies. The Grumpies are here, he said. Aye, aye, said the tailor, the Grumpies. Just come and do your work. So he came back to the table. And he heard another noise, and it was at the cupboard door. And he looked over. Oh, it's kittens, he said. Kittens, kittens, kittens. Aye, it's kittens. Kittens, he said, the tailor. That's enough now. Just get your work done. Oh, I could do with more milk, said the tailor after a wee minute. Oh, it's got such a druth, a thirst, such a druth on me. Oh, I know where the milk is, said the tailor's son, looking for any excuse to get up and not do any work. Well, on you go then, lad, he said. Go and fill up the jug with it. So the lad got the jug, jumped off his seat and went down to the barn. And he started to crank the handle, just like he'd seen his mother do. And the milk came and it flew out of the spout and it filled up the jug. But then he couldn't stop it. And the milk kept flowing and flowing and flowing until they were ankle deep. He was standing there ankle deep in it. And the tailor came running out. Where's that milk? <gasps> Look on his face. Couldn't believe it. Where's all this comfy? Next thing you know, the tailor's wife came in. Oh, yeah, we gouks, she said. Turn it off. She went over to the wall and she turned it off. Oh, that's it, she said. There'll be name milk in the village at all now. Oh, the dairy maids, name mind how much and how well they sing to their coos and nothing will happen. Not a drap will come for the cows the day. You've milked the whole area dry with your nonsense. Couldn't you just found me and asked me yourself? And the tailor and his son had suddenly realised that she was a witch and she had been draining all the milk from all the villages and now they had proof and she looked at them because she knew exactly what they were thinking oh, she said the milk and lasses will be sitting underneath the coos not a drop will they get you've ilk a beast in the countryside dry 
and the tailor and his apprentice returned hastily to their work, and they skimped a wee bit. And now the witch came in. One word about this to anybody, she said, her eyes like flashing bonfires. I'll put a truth on yous that the, no matter how much you drink, you'll never, ever sort it out. In fact, you could drink the whole of St Mary's Loch and you wouldn't have been satisfied. Well, Taylor and his son never said a word of it to anybody. And if they ever thought about it, then one look at that loch and they'd have thought twice. And in fact, it wasn't until she died that they even mentioned that story to anyone. And that's why we have the story now. Sometimes folk tales have wee grains of history in them. And this is one of them. And it's a folk tale from the Scottish borders, again, because I promised. And it's about the fairies who lived in Dunn's Law. Now, there was a family called the Coburns, and they had built their mansion house far too close to Dunn's Law. And the fairies were absolutely incensed with anger about this. And they had massive fights with the Coburns about it. And they even threatened to lift the whole mansion house up and shift it over to Greenlaw. Now, Coburns obviously didn't do anything about this. Except one night, when the whole mansion house was shaking and shivering and its very foundations began to crumble, and Lord Coburn... Fear for his life and the lives of his family stuck his head out the window and he shouted, Lord, keep us in the house together, he shouted. Please, fairy folk, please, good folk, leave us alone. And at that, the whole house stopped shaking. Now, some people say that because he invoked God, he was protected from the good folk, from the fairies. And others say that it was just earth tremors that shook the whole mansion. Either way, the mansion house was finally destroyed in 1920s. And as far as I know, the fairies are quite happy about that. And that story reminds me of another story. But this story is from the opposite end, <laughs> from the Scottish borders. It's up in Caithness, in a place called John O'Groats. And John O'Groats... The place name is said to have been named for a Dutchman, Johan de Groot, who came to Scotland sometime in the 16th century. And it's said that in order to avoid quarrels between the eight different beneficiaries of his will, de Groot built an octagonal house with eight doors and an octagonal table. And that way, everybody could enter by their own personal door and everybody would be the head of the table. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I like that story a lot. You've maybe heard the story of Wapiti Sturi, which comes from Scottish borders. And this is the Scottish version of Rumpelstiltskin. There's a woman, and she's a single mother, and she has her wee son, and she's reliant on the wee farm that they've got around them, and especially the pigs. And she's expecting the sow that she has to have, like, umpteen piglets. 
and this is how she's going to make the money for the rest of the year and look after themselves. However, she sees that her sow gets really sick, it's really ill, and she's weeping and she's just trying to do her best with this sow, but she's sure that it's been poisoned or something. And then an old woman came over, comes over, and she goes, Oh, I could help your pig. And the the mother goes, Oh please, I would do anything. And the weird woman says, Oh, I okay, well if you bind yourself to that promise then, you know, I'll help. I'll help you and I'll save your pig. So the woman binds herself to the promise. And this woman, this old woman, sure enough she mutters something over the pig and she splashes something on it, some kind of water, and this pig just comes back to life. And not only that, but it has its piglets right then and there, and there's about 12 of them. And the woman is overjoyed. I mean, the mother is so pleased. And the old weird woman says, right, now for that promise, I have to take something of yours. And the mother says, well, I'll give you, like, you can have some of the pigs or you can have, you know, food or, you know, I'll, I'll get money. And, and the old weird woman goes, no, I want your son. And the mother is like, no way, no, 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 anything but that, anything but that. But the old weird woman is absolutely adamant. And she says she'll be back in three days and she will collect her son unless this single mother can tell this old weird woman what her true name is. Now, the mother is beside herself. She can't sleep. And the last night, she's walking up and down the hillside and she's desperate. She doesn't know what she's going to do. And then, round the bend, she sees this old weird woman and she's dancing around a fire and she's singing... Oh, she'll never guess, she'll never guess. Whoppity Stoody is my name. And the old mother is so, she's so relieved. And she goes back to her house. And the next day, this old weird woman comes to get her son. And the mother goes, you know, she leads her on a wee bit. And she goes, well, come on, you said if I could guess your name, you know, that you would let me off. And the old weird woman goes, I go on then. I'll give you a wee chance. And the mother, the single mother, goes, is it Agnes? And Wapiti Sturi goes, ha ha ha, laughs her head off. She goes, nope, you'll never guess it, you'll never guess it. And again, the mother guesses something else. Is it clear? And Wapiti Sturi goes, ah ha ha, no it's not, right, give me, give me my son, give me your son over. Is it Wapiti Sturi, says the single mother. And at this, the old weird woman is just incensed with anger and she's hopping up and down, hopping up and down until she's hopping so fast that her feet go on fire and she curses and curses and swears and then she runs off and the woman never sees her again, she's never trolled by her again and she lives a happy life. <laughs> now, in Scots, uppets is a word for secrecy or keeping something very secret. And in Lanarkshire, Whuppity Scooty, not Whuppity Stoody, but Whuppity Scooty, was the name of a fight that would break out in Lanark. And all the lads would meet each other every six months and they would just have a set too. <laughs> and it started off with a tradition where a little bell would be rung every six months. And the ringing of this bell was kind of the signal for the boys in Lanark 
to meet in gangs and have a big fight. Now they started off just fighting each other with their hats tied on strings, but it very quickly went into punching and kicking and all sorts of things. And one day they got broken up by the police and it, it, a stop was put to it, thankfully. But there you are, Wapiti Skuri. And that happened around about 1890s, uh, 1894, just before 1895. So <laughs> it was the last time that it was ever recorded as happening. So there you are. Secret witch and a secret battle and a secret name. Some of the stories I shared today were specially requested and I'm only too happy to share stories that you want to hear. So if you have any special requests, if you'd like to hear about a certain beastie or a certain area of Scotland, either folk history or folklore, then get in touch. You can find me on Instagram at EileenBud and I will leave a wee thing at the end of this podcast that you can type something into, should you so wish. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of the Scottish Folk Podcast. And if you did, please tell your friends, share it, leave me a review. You can also find me on Instagram. I am at Eileen Budd. If you'd like to support the work that I'm doing with the Travelling Folk Museum, you could buy me a coffee. The link is in my Instagram bio. And that's it for this week. Have a brilliant. Just one more thing this style of Colombo. I'd like to give a huge, great big thank you to Sarah at Fuss Factory. Thank you so much, Sarah, for your extremely generous support of my work, my podcast, and also my Instagram page. I really appreciate it. Your support helps me keep telling these stories and keep sharing them. So thank you. <laughs>